This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Live podcast, Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit Podcast. And today is New Book Day, which is always exciting for us. Today we start the discussion of our first Shakespearean play on the podcast, and we have chosen Julius Caesar, possibly one of Shakespeare's most recognizable works. Obviously, there's so much uh, we can say about Shakespeare himself. He's the most famous writer in the English language. Some argue he's one of the greatest writers in any language. What a distinction and an amazing legacy. One of the more interesting ideas that reflects the enormity uh, of his language and the influence of his language is an idea I read from the famed Shakespearean critic Isaac Asimov. He said that Shakespeare stopped the English language, which is an unusual turn of phrase. But what he means by it is that English at this time or has always been evolving and changing. And when we read some of the older works written in English, maybe by Chaucer or some of those contemporaries, it's hard to understand. But when we get to the language of Shakespeare, the language has kind of become standardized. It's hard to read a lot of the things that he wrote, uh, but we can actually read them. And really, because of Shakespeare and possibly the King James Bible, the evolutionary process of the English language kind of halted. So even though his writing is dense, it was still dense back then, but it's readable 400 years later. So without getting into hardly anything of his life, which we don't really have time to do and then talk about <laughs> Julius Caesar's life too, yes. I know, we do need to say that he was born famously on St. George's Day or April 23rd, in 1564, in a small town 90 miles north of England, uh, north of England, north of London, in a little town that's now famous called Stratford upon Avon. I've heard of it. Hmm. 
I hope one day we do get to get into some more details of his life story, but a little context is probably good, especially for those who are not very familiar with English history. Uh, Historically, it's important to know that Shakespeare lived during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I and then King James. And King James, if you listen to the podcast on Robert Burns, was actually Scottish, and it was no small change when he moved to England, either for the Scots or the English. Um, England during this time period was at relative peace. The Spanish Armada is defeated when Shakespeare is 24 years old. Um, There is a slight problem of the plague wiping out large segments of the population. (laughs) But for the most part, England lives in relative peace. And this period is a time of great production in the arts. Not just plays, but both Elizabeth and James supported the arts, even if they did make them move theaters out of the city limits because it was a bit rowdy and perhaps even vulgar. Now, we need just a little political historical context to help smooth things out here a little bit. Uh, During Shakespeare's time, England was in this evolutionary process of representative government. They had been at it since 1215 with the Magna Carta, and they'd had various stages of limiting the powers of the king through uh, constitutional government, things of that nature. On the continent, in places such as France, the monarchies were centralizing and becoming more and more powerful, so they were going in the opposite direction. England was unique and separate from what was going on on the continents. So, in Shakespeare's day, he would have trusted uh, the, the growing evolution of representative government and been against the continental absolutism. And I find this interesting because Shakespeare does see England as an emerging republic threatened by an emerging dictator in James I. He's later at some point going to try to disband parliament. Anyway, Julius Caesar ties in some of those themes, and this would have appealed to the common Englishman of the day. Well, it's also important to understand that Shakespeare really didn't write these plays with the idea that he's writing this legendary art of poetry and prose that's going to be inspiring hundreds of people or millions of people for centuries. The stories are stories that were familiar to his audience, especially the histories, but not just the histories, the tragedies uh, as well. I'm not sure any of them actually are original to him. He really didn't even have time for that. He was writing these plays, the parts, often at night in a pub by candlelight on scraps of paper for different actors, and then they had to be performed almost immediately. Sometimes he even played small parts himself. This was a money-making venture. It was popular entertainment, and he was making a fortune, especially after he became part owner of the Globe Theater. Truth be told, I think it's kind of interesting to understand that we probably wouldn't even know who Shakespeare was if it weren't for some of his old friends and colleagues that collected the 36 plays, 18 of which had never been published before, and put them together in today we call the First Folio. Another interesting thing about the famous First Folio is it has one of the only portraits of Shakespeare that were approved by people who actually knew him. Ben Jonson, however, who's a contemporary and a famous writer in his own right who wrote the preface for the folio gives us an important warning he says do not judge shakespeare by the picture because in the picture you can only see his appearance and you can't see his wit and if you want to see shakespeare you need to look in the book and truly it's not for the stories themselves that we're in love with this man 
It's the turn of phrases that he makes. It's the humor, the insight on life. It's the way that he tells his story that make people never get tired of him. And I speak for myself. I can read the same play over and over and over again, and I really don't get tired of it. Sometimes you can feel the same play over and over again, and you can't even feel like you've understood it. If you don't believe that, read Hamlet. <laughs> True. Um, one of my favorite things about his turns of phrases is that you have a coffee cup. And on the coffee cup, it's a whole list of Shakespearean insults. And Shakespearean insults are the best. They're, they're great. Um, and also, I want to point out, you have seen a copy of the folio, correct? That's true. There, there are several of them around. Um, there are actually 235 first folios that are still in existence today. And one time I was in uh, Kansas City for an AP reading, and they had one there. And so I ran over to where it was like in some random building. They were—I mean, it wasn't random. I'm not really sure what it was, but it, <laughs> it was probably artistically. Yeah, related. but it, it wasn't what you would think. And and they had it on display, and you can just be in awe there's just not that many of them uh, in the world but if you do look at them and i did i was excited to say one of the things that you're going to notice is that they weren't collected really in chronological order uh the first play in the folio is actually the last one that he wrote they're divided uh comedies tragedies and histories and julius caesar although it's about killing a guy is not a tragedy it's a history However, Shakespeare takes whatever liberties he needs to when he tells his stories, this one included. Since we already know the story, the point is not the surprise twist of the plot. It is truly rhetorical. He has a definite point of view and a political perspective that had applications for Elizabethan England, but certainly not just for them. Many of them still apply to modern politics, even American politics. You know, that's really true. And I do want us to get into that. The truth is, uh, he had the story that he wanted to tell. And this particular story takes place over a two-year period. But he has to fit it into a couple of hours. This is kind of like what modern movie writers have to do. Also, he could have left a lot of things out and people could fill in the blanks because these are stories that everybody knew. At the time that he wrote this play, almost all of the education that people were receiving was classical education. That means they're reading classical literature and they're studying classical languages. That means Greek and Roman. Even little kids, everybody knew a lot of these stories. They studied them. They thought about their significance. They debated the truths that were in the writings of people that we don't know, but they were really familiar with, like Plutarch and Ovid and others. Uh, I found interesting that one of the exercises that they made almost all students, and maybe it is all students, but I, I'm always afraid to use the all word. <laughs> well, for good reason. Yeah, but in what we would call middle school or high school, they would actually debate on whether or not Julius Caesar should have been killed. And they discussed the two sides of this issue, which is basically what this play is really, that's the question that people, that this play asks. And Shakespeare is going to give his answer. Everyone already had an opinion on this, and so that's what he's addressing. 
Well, this is what makes this play a little more difficult for the modern reader. We don't routinely study the history of Rome, and we certainly don't think about the political ideas of the Roman Empire, but perhaps we should. It's surprising for most readers or playgoers to find out that Caesar isn't the main character. The central character of this play is not Julius Caesar at all, but it's Brutus, which is surprising when you read it. Here comes a spoiler alert. When Caesar dies in Act 3, you wonder, well, what are the next two acts even going to be about? I actually get asked that question a lot. I got that asked that question. We were kind of reading this now, and a couple weeks ago we killed Caesar, and the kids were like, why do we have to keep reading? <laughs> That's literally what they ask. Yes. Uh, it's true and it's important. Caesar appears actually in only five scenes of the play, unless you count his ghost. That's going to show up. He's a stilted character, and he's not fleshed out as his true personality would have been at all. In the play, he's really stiff and kind of cheesy and talks about himself in the third person. In real life, he's charismatic and charming and everyone falls in love with him. But his spirit, if you want to think about the concept of spirit being his influence or his essence, it actually is in every scene in every play. He is always there hovering and influencing things well after he died. But that's not even... The main issue that Shakespeare really wants us to think about as we look at the play thematically, and it's an important play thematically because the theme that he's addressing is actually very significant and relevant. It's most aptly addressed maybe uh, in the middle of the night when Brutus is up brewing over whether he should or should not kill Caesar. And he's talking to himself in this real famous soliloquy. And he makes the point that he's going to kill Caesar, or should he kill Caesar, really? Not for anything that Caesar's already done, because Caesar has done some great things. But he thinks he should kill him for what he's going to do. Do I take somebody out preemptively? And of course, one of the questions that Shakespeare wants the audience to think about is, is that a thing? Can you take somebody out for something that they haven't done just because you think they might or are capable of doing something? So is Brutus noble for this? Or is he self-deceiving? Is he conniving? Is he power hungry? Is he a politician like any other? What is the nobility of preemptive strikes? Oh my goodness, that just echoes our contemporary political times. Um, so we may be getting a little ahead of ourselves in talking about themes and such. So before we do, let's go back and tell the story of Caesar as it actually happened. And then look at how Shakespeare chooses to tell the story and discuss perhaps why he made the choices he made. And perhaps more importantly, why should we even care in modern life about these Roman and Shakespearean ideas? That works for me. So take us back Thousands of years, maybe 2,000 uh, 2, <laughs> years. 2,000. Okay. Uh, how did Julius Caesar get to be the emperor that ruled the world? He certainly was not born into that. No, he, he definitely was not. He was actually born around 100 BC, interestingly enough, by Caesarian section, hence the name C-section. <laughs> or at least that's the legend behind it. Um, his family is what we would call upper middle class. His father died when he was young, and he married in age 18 to the first of what would be his three wives to a woman named Cornelia. 
She actually gave birth to the only legitimate child he'd ever father, and that was a girl named Julia. There's a lot of drama regarding that and other things about that, some even involving pirates, the death of his wife, which was a tragedy, several affairs with important women, an important job as the chief priest, a marriage and divorce to a woman named Pompeia. But to quickly get to the place in history we want to get to, he rises in power sometime around 60 BC. He's in a place where he can make a play at ruling Rome, although not alone. Um, he aligns himself with the richest man in Rome, a man named Crassus, and an old war hero named Pompey, who he marries Julia off to, uh, but who had nobly but foolishly surrendered all of his power by giving up his troops after several successful war campaigns. So, to oversimplify what happened, Crassus had the money, Pompey had the prestige, but Caesar had the charm and the personality to create what historians now call the first triumvirate. At the time of Caesar, Rome was a republic, but don't make the mistake of thinking a republic like the United States. It was run by a senate and had been for 400 years, but the senators at this point were super self-serving and there was no fooling the public that they were not serving the people. They were obviously corrupt. Anyway, the, the system was the Senate would be led by two men, co-councils, who would serve a term and rotate off. After Julius Caesar's term, he got himself, with the help of Crassus and Pompey, appointed for the governorship of the portion of Gaul, which is modern-day southern France and northern Italy. Pompey got himself assigned the governorship of Spain, and this is where things heat up. Caesar goes to Gaul and conquers all of Gaul. Everyone is shocked to find out he's a military genius. Pompey sends soldiers to Spain but chooses to hang out in Rome instead of going in person. Well, and as we'll see in the play, Caesar is going to become super popular with the Roman people for many reasons. He seems to really serve the Roman people as their leader, and he becomes endeared by many people. One of the things... That he does, and Anthony points this out in the famous eulogy in Act 3, is that when he conquers Gaul, this has the effect of enriching Romans. So when you go into a, a place and you conquer it, we don't think about it now, but you either kill the people or you enslave the people. And so he was sending back all these slaves. So you either got your slave, or if they came from a rich family, you could sell them back to their family members and for ransom. And you got cash. So his fame is only increasing with time as he enriches more and more people, gains more ground. And Pompey and Crassus are going to become extremely jealous of this and feel like they need to make a play to kind of not get pushed out. So Crassus does this boneheaded move. He decides he's going to go out and do his own conquering. So he goes out and makes a war of his own. But unfortunately, he isn't the great military genius that Caesar is, and it ends poorly, and he gets himself killed in the process. So one down, that's going to leave Pompey and Caesar to duke it out. The Senate actually is more afraid of Julius than they are with Pompey, so they decide to support Pompey. They tell Caesar that, thank you for your service, we appreciate all your conquests in Gaul, but you need to come home, turn in your general hat, become a private citizen, you've done your due. Caesar now, if you think, and if you look on the map, it, it kind of makes sense. Gaul is actually 
maybe bigger than, you know, the little country of Italy and not the whole Roman Empire. But he listens to that and says, not just no, but heck no, I'm not doing that. And he does one of the boldest things that I know of anyone ever doing. He decides to kind of attack his own country. And he does this by crossing the Rubicon. Gary, what that term? We, we've all heard, oh, I'm, he's got to cross the Rubicon What does that even mean? It's the point of no return. Um, Well, several um, Roman leaders during that time period rose to power because they commanded their own individual armies. But part of the rule of Rome was that the leader himself, in this case, Julius Caesar, gives up his military status when he comes into Rome and the armies would camp outside of Rome. Well, what was expected if Caesar was to follow this pattern um, was that when they got to the Rubicon River, the army would stay on the north side. Caesar would go south on into Rome. So anyway... The, so he would come into Rome like just one person. Unarmed and without the support of his military, yes. And that was that was the political tradition during that time period. So the, the Rubicon has become famous, and it's really just a little river and a boundary between Italy and France. And what Julius Caesar did was basically invade Rome with the Roman army. Um, he... <laughs> He came home, but as an invader, and he started a civil war. And this war started when he literally crossed the Rubicon River with the Roman army. It was a huge risk. And so, you know, who does this kind of thing? But it paid off. People loved Caesar. He'd been making them rich, and they had no use for the Senate or for Pompey. He was a popular old general, but it had been a long time since he was successful. He'd been in Rome for a while and was on the side of the senators, The army that stayed in Rome all defected to Caesar's team instead of fighting him. Pompey was forced to get out of town, and a lot of the senators were run out with him. Uh, Caesar Caesar chases him with the army, so Pompey made a logical move, and he ran to Egypt to get help, although this turned out to be a bad idea also. It was a bad idea, because although... You know, it, Egypt was an independent country. It was nowhere near the size of Rome, and they had their own problems. Uh, Ptolemy, who was the pharaoh, had a, was competing for power with his sister, Cleopatra. She'd been run out of town, but she was making a play for that country. So when Pompey goes to Egypt, he has him immediately killed as he you know, walks into the I mean, he didn't walk into town, but walked into <laughs> Egyptian territory. And Ptolemy didn't know uh, who he was dealing with, really. He thinks this is going to make Caesar happy. Look, I killed your enemy. But it didn't actually go over well with Caesar at all. If he'd known anything about Caesar, he may have known this. Caesar, as a general rule, was actually really generous to the Roman generals that he defeated. Uh, in fact, Brutus, who we're going to see in this play had served Pompey as well as all the other conspirators at one point or another had been on different armies against Caesar and all of them had been defeated by Caesar and they had all been pardoned by Caesar. So they owed him something to some degree. You can't find a lot of support for the idea that Caesar was this vengeful ruler that was taking down everybody who stood up against them. He was actually too cunning of a politician for something like that. He knew at the end of the day, if he was going to rule Rome, he had to unite Rome and bring in these leaders from these other families, these other generals that had opposed him. So anyway, the story goes, and it's kind of a bizarre and funny story that 
Ptolemy serves him uh, Pompey's head on a platter, and he gets mad about that. And if that wasn't enough, Cleopatra, who at age 21 apparently was very beautiful and seductive, although no one really knows, she had herself delivered to him, wrapped up naked in a carpet, and dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Bold, bold move. All right, well, uh, moving on from there, um, he stays in Egypt about nine months. He fights another war in Africa and then comes back to clean up what was Pompey's old governorship of Spain. It was being ruled by Pompey's son, and he apparently had no problem running him off, too. When this play opens, we see Caesar marching into Rome. Now, this actually happened in October of 45 B.C., Although in the play, this is happening in February. This is what I mean by he just cuts and pastes things together to make the story fit. It's not that big of a jump, but everyone would understand. No need to complicate things by having multiple events. In the play, Caesar is marching into Rome, celebrating his victory over Pompey. This is confusing because we think of Pompey as being that guy who we just told you died in Egypt. But it's not his old rival. It's actually his son, his rival's son, who had been ruling Spain. And the scene is a very controversial one, which is why it opens with these two tribunes out, these two guys named Flavius and Morellus. They're offended by everything. Now, a modern reader, and I'm going to say myself, when I read this, I thought they're just salty because they're on Team Pompey and he's Julius, Team Julius, but... They're not soldiers. They're tribunes. And tribunes are government representatives in the Senate that represent regular people. So the regular people, we understand they're for Caesar, but these two guys are not. Why would that be true? Well, the answer is that Caesar's entrance into Rome was pretty much a political overreach. Sure, it's common in that day that when a Roman general conquered a country or something like that he would march in and they'd have a parade kind of like you know we do maybe on new year's and they would show off their slaves and brag and what they all conquered uh that had been done a bunch of times but he's not coming from a conquest of another country he's coming back from spain and it was a civil war and so when these two characters say he's coming in and triumph over pompey's blood he's pointing out He's killing Romans. This is not cool. So in this sense, it was inappropriate to people who were, who were thinking a little, more, a little bit more deeply about the system. The idea is, you know, it's controversial in the sense that not that he's coming into Rome, but that he's celebrating the victory over his own people. And this confrontation with these two men, Flavius and Morales, is actually a recorded piece of history by Plutarch. It just didn't happen quite the same way we see it happening in the play. So if that's not ultra confusing, let me reduce it to say... (laughs) There's so much. I know. Well, in this first scene of Julius Caesar, we're having this famous entrance. He's showing Julius marching into town People are excited. It's controversial. Some people are not because of this whole backstory with Pompey. But in this play, it's also combined with what we call the Feast of Lupercal, which is this random Roman holiday. Tell us about the Feast of Lupercal here, February 15. I don't think we have a uh, counterpart to it today in our modern culture, but (laughs) the uh, Lupercalian festival was an old fertility rite. 
Uh, it involved a ritual with goats where strips of the goat skin would be uh, cut off by the priests and men or rather athletic men would run around Palatine Hill. They would hit women as they went with these sticks or whips that they had made and uh, they would not hit them to hurt them. But it was believed that if you were struck by one of these goat sticks, you would get pregnant that year. So women actually lined up to get hit. Well, in this play, and this is historically accurate too, Caesar's wife at the time, his third wife, doesn't have any children, Calphurnia, and Caesar opens up by telling her, you need to go get hit by this guy, one of my soldier guys, Anthony, and he tells Anthony, I want you to go hit my wife when you run the race. (laughs) So it's awkward and perhaps for a woman, slightly insulting, but tell us who's Anthony. (laughs) Well, his name is Antonius, and he is 38 years old at the time of the play. He's actually a relative of Julius, and he fought with him in Gaul. He was a general. He was known for being extremely loyal to Julius. In the play, he's kind of a hunk. He's an athlete. He's a ladies' man. He's given to drink. Cassius calls him a reveler. Uh, He crossed the Rubicon with Caesar, actually, and he wasn't known for his brains, however, not even to Caesar. In Act 1 of the play, Anthony, during the Feast of the Lupercal, and this is another real historical event. So he marches into town on another day, but that really happened. There is a Feast of the Lupercal. That really happened. And during the Feast of the Lupercal, Anthony and Caesar kind of contrived this deal where Anthony is going to try to crown him king. And he's going to try to do it three times he's gonna and then caesar's gonna push the crown no i can't and he's gonna say yes you must and now i can't and it seems strange uh, for a modern reader to say well why does what's the big deal about this isn't he a dictator of rome what's the difference why why does it matter if you're a king or a caesar or a dictator aren't those terms interchangeable well, first of all, the title king was not well received by Roman people. The other countries they were conquering had kings, and although Caesar was a dictator, he was not a king. They had a senate, but more importantly, there was no hereditary feature to his rule. That's a primary difference. He was at first a dictator for one year, then he was a dictator for 10 years, and finally he was a dictator for life. But the problem with all of that as it was finite, even the dictator for life thing was finite. When he died, he was done. Uh, he did not get to point an heir. Now, you might think, what does it matter? You're dead. But it does matter because if, if you don't like the dictator, just kill him. Then it's a power grab for the throne, and it could be yours. If you have a king, there is no grab for the throne because there are heirs, thus lessening your incentive to try to kill the dictator. Up to that point, Caesar had already done a lot of things that people liked. He'd reconstructed cities. He had broadened the definition of who could be a Roman citizen. He had improved trade. He had even made a calendar, and he had established a library. So what you're saying is that when Anthony is there to make him a king, he means that I'm going to give myself the authority to pick my own um, successor. And the conspirators don't like that because now they have no opportunity thus to to be a successor. That's exactly what this is about. And one more thing I want to mention about this scene, which is interesting 
Uh, although perhaps not historically life-changing, one thing that most people know about this play is that a soothsayer, which is not an easy word to say, approaches Caesar at this Lupercal festival and he utters the famous words, Beware the Ides of March. Oh, yes. Everyone's favorite line. Well, it's not everyone's favorite line. My students' favorite line is, Hey, ho, because he says that a lot. <laughs> uh, and a lot of people like the, the lines, Oh, you saucy fellow. I'm a fan of you saucy fellow. But if you take out the saucy fellow line, beware of the Ides of March is is on the list of famous Shakespearean phrases. Well, according to Plutarch, that actually happened, or at least they say it did. And when you get to history that old, one has to wonder. But the incident is said to have actually happened. All right. Well, that's a lot of ground to cover. Uh, we've kind of set up, really, we actually talked through what happens in scene one when we have the entrance into Rome, and then some of scene two, where we see Caesar going off to watch Anthony run this race. And while Anthony is off running this race, uh, we have this very important incident where a man named Cassius is going to approach Brutus, And I don't think it's appropriate to talk about Shakespeare without reading some Shakespeare. And I think this is probably the most uh, interesting part of this play to really feature and read out together. So I want us to do that. But in order to do that, we need to set up who these characters are. So we know who Caesar is, and we know who Anthony is, but who is Brutus and Cassius? Because these are the two that are ultimately going to lead the conspiracy. And that's important to remember put them together for the conspiracy. Uh, Brutus is about 40 years old. He's 15 years younger than Caesar. He had fought on Pompey's side during that civil war and was taken prisoner when Pompey was defeated. Brutus was pardoned by Caesar and actually was a lieutenant for Caesar serving in Gaul under Caesar at one point. So they have that connection and relationship. Cassius, on the other hand, had fought with Crassus in that disastrous campaign. He actually was a competent general and was able to save some of the guys who were fighting that war and got them back to Rome. He also fought for a while with Pompey against Caesar. He also was pardoned by Caesar and changed sides when he saw Pompey was done. He was married to Brutus's sister, so those two are actually brothers-in-law. Well, let's read a little bit of the exchange between these two because what happens is Brutus stays back. He doesn't want to watch, you know, Anthony arrogant Anthony do his thing and when he does Brutus is going to stay back too and I mean I'm sorry Cassius is going to stay back too and Cassius is going to make a play on his brother-in-law who he knows is very prone to being um, a, an egomaniac or at least he likes to stroke <laughs> his ego and he feels like this is the angle that he can take to talk him in to killing Caesar so I want us to start uh, in scene, act one, scene two, and let's start with these lines where Cassius is going to try to uh, encourage Brutus to think about, at this point, taking down Caesar. Okay, so I want to reference the 1970 movie version of Julius Caesar starring Marlon Brando. Um, Since I have to be Brutus in this reading, the famous actor James (laughs) Mason portrayed Brutus, so I'm going to try to put in my best James Mason voice. Not really, because I would have to fake an English accent. Just thought I'd throw that in. Give it a go. Okay. Brutus. (laughs) Okay, Cassius. (laughs) All right, so we get these lines, and uh, there's all this shouting that that is going on in the background, 
And um, Cassius is going to go up to Brutus and he says, Tell me, good Brutus, can you see your face? No, Cassius, for the eye sees not itself but by reflection by some other things. So when he says, do you see your face, he means, do you know what people see when they see you? He's going to say, tis just. And it is very much lamented, Brutus, that you have no such mirrors as will turn your hidden worthiness into your eye, that you might see your shadow. I have heard where many of the best respect in Rome, except immortal Caesar, speaking of Brutus, and groan underneath this age's yoke, have wished that noble Brutus had his eyes. In other words, the best people say wonderful things, except for immortal Caesar. He won't say anything good about you, but everyone else has wonderful things to say. I wish you knew. Into what dangers would you lead me, Cassius, that you would have me seek into myself for that which is not in me? Therefore, good Brutus, be prepared to hear, and since you know you cannot see yourself as well as by reflection, I, your glass, so I'm going to be your mirror, will modestly discover to yourself that of yourself for you yet know not of. So he's going to say, even though Cassius knows he's an arrogant uh, guy, he's going to say, you're so modest. Let me just tell you what people <laughs> Let me say. tell you the wonderful things about you. But, and he's going to get to start to do this, but then they're interrupted by some shouting that they hear going on with the whole thing with the crown. And Brutus is going to say, What means this shouting? I do fear the people choose Caesar for their king. Aye, and do you fear it? Then must I think you would not have it so? I would not, Cassius, yet I love him well. But wherefore do you hold me here so long? What is it that you would impart to me? If I ought toward the general good, set honor in one eye and death the other, and I will look on both indifferently, for let the gods so speed me as I love the name of honor more than I fear death. So he's very noble. I'm, I'm more honorable than I fear death, is, is his assessment of himself. And Cass is going to say, Oh, I know that virtue to be in you, Brutus, as well as I know your outward favor. Well, honor is the subject of my story. And he's going to tell a story and basically say, These are the reasons that I don't like Caesar. I was born free as Caesar, so were you. We have both fed as well, and we can both endure the winter's cold as well as he. For once upon a raw and gusty day, the troubled Tiber, chafing with her shores, Caesar said to me, Dearest thou, Cassius, now, leap in with me into this angry flood and swim to yonder point. Upon the word, accounted as I was, I plunged in and bade him follow. So indeed he did. The torrent roared, and we did buffet it with lusty sinews, throwing it aside and stimming it with hearts of controversy. But ere we could arrive, the point proposed, Caesar cried, Help me, Cassius, or I sink. <laughs> I, as Aeneas, our great ancestor, did from the flames of Troy under his shoulder the old Anchises bear, so from the waves of Tyre, Tiber did I, the tired Caesar. And this man is now become a god, and Cassius is a wretched creature and must bend his body if Caesar carelessly but not on him? He had a fever when he was in Spain, and when the fit was on him, I did mark how he did shake. Tis true, this god did shake. His coward lips from their color fly, 
And that same I who's been to all the world did lose his luster. I did hear him groan, I, and that tongue of his that bade the Romans mark him and write his speeches in their books, alas, it cried. Give me some drink, Titinius, as a sick girl. Ye gods, it doth amaze me a man of such a feeble temper should go get the start of the majestic world and bear the palm alone. So I don't know if you could understand through my reading, but what I tried to convey is he's not complaining that Caesar is a dictator or that he's an unreasonable ruler or that he's bad to the people. His complaint is, I'm just as good as that guy. He's weak. He's, he's, he's girly. I mean, he literally says, he's girly. And you, Brutus, you're manly. I mean, if there's not much Your of Your vocal inflections <laughs> got those points across, even if you couldn't read the English. <laughs> well, it's just such a, a shallow argument to make. Oh, you're so much more of a man than Caesar, although he claims to be a god, and we're just mortal. So, of course... Um, They get erupted again because there's more shouting. And then he says, Cassius is going to say these famous lines that everybody knows, mostly because of the movie. But he says this. He's going to say, Men at some time are masters of their fate. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves that we are underlings. Brutus and Cassius, what should be in that Caesar, why should that name be sounded more than yours? Write them together. Yours is a fair name. Sound them. It doth become the mouth as well. Weigh them. It is as heavy. Conjure them. Brutus Brutus will start a spirit as soon as Caesar. Now in the names of all the gods at once, upon what meat doth this Caesar feed that he has grown so great? So in other words, you're just as good as him. Mm -hmm. If you're an underling, it's your fault. It's not in the fault of fate. It's not in the stars. If we're underlings, it's on us. Again, a very shallow and perhaps elementary level <laughs> argument. But uh, Brutus buys it. But it's the stuff that great jealousy is made of, and that will motivate them to strike a king. And I think that's the point. It is. And Shakespeare, if not anything, was brilliant at weaving human emotions and exposing human emotions into his stories. And basically, from the get-go, we're going to see it's never as noble as it appears to be. Yes. There's just usually a little bit of cynicism with Shakespeare in all that he does. (laughs) Your name is as good as his name is basically where, where we've gone. The games are done. At the end of this conversation, Caesar is returning. Uh, They pull out this guy uh, named um, Casca to tell them what has happened. He recounts all this business about Anthony trying to give give, um, the crown to Caesar. And I want to point out a couple more things that are just strange. When Casca gives this account of what had happened when Anthony tries to put the the crown on Caesar, he says a couple of things that are strange. First, he says Caesar's deaf in one ear. And as far as we know, Caesar is not deaf in one ear. And the other thing he says is after he tries to give him the crown and he doesn't, 
Caesar falls down and has an epileptic seizure in front of the rest of the crowds. And that's kind of what, you know, tears up the ceremony. And I'm not sure we know if he was an epileptic I'm not, uh, or not. But we don't really know uh, if that actually is what happened. All we really know from Plutarch, the historian, is that he does leave angry from that incident because the whole crowning thing went awry and okay. what it was supposed to work. So they come back, and that kind of brings us to the end uh, of scene two. The only other famous line that I think is worthy of note is they want to know, well, what does Cicero think of all this? Cicero, Cicero is this real respected guy, and he goes, I don't know. He said something, but it was Greek to me. <laughs> and <laughs> that phrase, yeah, well, and that that phrase has been famous because literally Caesar Cicero was speaking in Greek, mm-hmm. and Casca doesn't know what Cicero says because he doesn't speak Greek. So that's the end of where I think we need to uh, get to today. Uh, so is this a good stopping point for our, our introduction into Julius Caesar? Yeah, it is um, a great. Uh, stopping point scene two is the end of of where we kind of get the beginning and it ends with that noble minds keep ever with their likes for who's so firm that cannot be seduced and is with that question that we we close the scene uh if you enjoyed being with us for julius caesar well then check out our facebook page how to love lit podcast.com we have teaching materials regarding the episodes on julius caesar Um, Be our friend on Facebook. Be our friend on Instagram. And uh, thanks for being with us today. And we'll catch you next time as we get into the next acts of Julius Caesar. Peace out. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi Mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started 